The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. The one biggest piece of advice I could give is the one of the failures that happens, I think, with most entrepreneurs is that they they think if they build it, people will come. And that's the number one mistake where they have, oh, this is an awesome idea. Like, everyone's going to love it. Like, yeah, this person told me they love it. Da, 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 and they spend all this time, spend all this money. They build this thing. They create this product, this website, this software, Apple, whatever. And then nobody wants it or nobody downloads it or nobody buys it. So I think in the beginning, really figure out whether or not your customer actually wants that. Talk to people. Like it doesn't cost money to, to interview someone. Just ask them what their pain points are. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 5. Welcome back. First time listeners, if you are looking for a show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming communities from around the world, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last episode, we spoke to founder and CEO of Harvest, Ali Daniali. Ali and I connected at the Indoor Ag Tech NYC conference a couple of months ago, and we had a great conversation where he shared his background in engineering, the origin story of harvests, and the importance of supporting and promoting small farming both domestically and abroad. It's really interesting what Ali has done with his indoor farming as a service model, and I think we're going to be hearing more about him. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with founder and CEO of VegBed, Albert Lin. He joins the show today to share the work he's doing to create a better and easier way to use a growing medium for the hydroponic community. As an innovative entrepreneur, this one is especially helpful for those that are just getting started with their idea and their companies in this ag tech space. And we had a really good conversation, which I'm excited to share with you. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Before we jump into this uninterrupted interview with Albert, a couple of words from the folks that support the show. This episode is brought to you by Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Noah brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. Sign up today at verticalfarmingweekly.com. Albert Lin, founder at VegBed, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Harry. Excited to be here. Where are you calling in from? Right now in northern New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> I just got back from the East Coast. I was at Indoor Icon NYC uh, for two days on the Thursday and Friday in Brooklyn. I was at the Marriott. And it's my, now my second indoor farming conference. And I uh, got to, it was nice because it was single track. So there was nothing to, you know, normally sometimes, or sometimes when you go to a conference, you, you're sort of trying to decide which sessions to attend. 
And then this was nice because they, they did a really good job. So shout out to the organizers. Have you been to any of the indoor farming conferences yet? I was actually at Green Tech the previous week. Okay. And uh, it was exactly what you were just describing where it's just such a massive event. There's like four different areas of speaking going on. So it's very hard to figure out which one you want to go to. Yeah. But it was good. It was a good event. Uh, unfortunately, I caught COVID there. But uh, Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but so far, the symptoms have been pretty mild. So, yeah, it's a good event. And prior to that, were you a regular attendee of conferences for previous jobs? Actually, the... For, in terms of ag, the Green Tech in Amsterdam is the only one I've been to. I've been, I've been in that one twice, and I'm part of the NYC Ag Collective, which is a nonprofit uh, here based at NYC. And we have NYC Ag Tech Week every year, so that's something that we organize um, that I attend. And uh, so, for folks who haven't attended Green Tech, where exactly was it hosted? And if you could tell, tell me a little bit about it. Previously, it was in Amsterdam once a year. Okay, and now I think they're doing a twice a year event so it's usually once in amsterdam and then also once in mexico city yeah nice so yeah usually it's like springtime mexico and then the summertime one is in, in amsterdam yeah so for the benefit of the listener can you rewind the clock a little bit and uh you know i'm just curious where where you grew up and you know when you headed into to school if you were if you knew at that time that what you were studying would would eventually lead you to the path you're on now yeah, like my schooling and how I grew up had zero relation to agriculture or anything that I'm doing now. I grew up in Forest Hills, New York. My parents still live in the in the same childhood house that I grew up in. Nice. Went to elementary school there. Ended up going to Carnegie Mellon to get my bachelor's in mechanical engineering, but ended up going into finance after college and then started working at a couple of startups. And then after a couple of stints at uh, some early stage startups, that kind of got my you know, got my brain flowing through like the entrepreneurial mindset. And that, that was kind of how this whole thing started. Yeah. You had some early experience with, uh, was farm stock? Yeah. At the time, this was the time when I first started getting into hydroponics and I got introduced to a friend of a friend who was starting, was trying to start an indoor farm in upstate New York. So we got connected. They asked me to join the team and there was about six of us. And, uh, we were trying to implement like a rotating, vertical rack system uh in upstate new york worked on that project for about nine months but the main issue with that was like we had all the pieces in place in terms of like the technology the land the architect the survey all that but the bulk of the funding which was to build the greenhouse was like we were looking for like two and a half million just couldn't get any vcs to be lead investor on that in retrospect i understand what where they're coming from because at the time i was still consider myself a hobbyist and I was the one with the most knowledge as a hobbyist on the team. Everybody else was from like marketing backgrounds, from like, you know, investment banking. Nobody actually had commercial farming experience. So I could see the hesitation there. But everyone was really passionate about the project. But I don't think that was enough for, for them to, to put dip their toes into that. What was it about that project that uh, sort of piqued your interest and, and made you feel like it's something you wanted to give it a shot? I think because at the time... Vertical farming, like the energy cost was still a very big part of the equation. People are still trying to figure that out. And so the architect that we were working with, his background is in like sustainable um, structures and greenhouses. And he actually created his own greenhouse in upstate New York was and claims it to be like a net zero greenhouse. So we were trying to implement some of his techniques, designs into our greenhouse. And so that was kind of what piqued me where it was like, all right, we're going to keep the glass model so that we don't have to use 
LEDs 24-7. But then I think it's a difficult model because I think the industry is either you're either a 2D flat greenhouse or you're an indoor vertical 100% LED light. It's very rare to see somebody try to implement a vertical greenhouse type system. I mean, there's a lot of difficulties to it, but uh, that was kind of what piqued me because not many people were doing that at the time. What would you say was your biggest takeaway, your lesson learned, whether it was like what to do or what not to do? (laughs) Yeah, I think the biggest thing would have probably been just trying to go too big before we even did a small scale pilot, right? Like I think it would have been a lot easier if we just tried to raise 50 to 100K, kind of like fence and frame around and then build build like a small like two three thousand square foot test pilot project working prototype and just see how that worked yeah like a prototype thing is trying to go full scale like forty fifty thousand square feet and none of us have done it before it's it was just too much of a gap and so after that you had a short stint at a company called Homebell and then you went on to Forkable which I imagine was there any helpful lessons learned from the, the time spent at those two companies not really I mean they're both like early stage startups yeah. where I was, you know, one of the first 10 to 20 people hired at the company. I guess the only thing I guess would be advantage of taking away from early stage startup is like, you just have to be able to do everything. Like if you don't really get hired to just do one role, you do get hired to do one role, but then when you're actually in it, you're juggling like five different things at the same time. So it gives you a lot of exposure to like how to get something from zero to one and build stuff from scratch, which definitely helped with, getting bed bed off the ground and building from scratch, um, which I started as a side project while I was working full time. Yeah. And so um, obviously this idea, the startup mentality, and I'm sure some of those lessons, whether you realize you were learning them at the time, probably came back to you and, and were helpful. But it, what's interesting is after you left Forkable, you, you went back into finance, you went back into fake tech. Yeah, it was a, a fintech company, you know, fast growing kind of very altruistic, you know, B Corp, trying to just help out uh, the underserved community with um, like financial products in terms of like small personal loans and stuff that uh, they wouldn't be able to get at traditional banks or lenders. So the idea piqued my interest and, uh, you know, the role gave me a lot of responsibility. So that's kind of how I knew it. So I was, I wasn't really agnostic. I was industry agnostic with like the companies that I worked at, but it, I was specifically going for companies that were like, just at the cusp of kind of getting all the operations and stuff kind of honed out and then just taking it to the next level. So kind of like jumping in there and getting all that set up for them. It seems like there's also through line of working for companies that are doing good for the world. And I'm wondering if that's a value or something that was, you know, you were taught when you were younger. Is that something that comes from your family or where do you think that drive comes from? That's a really good question. Yeah. I know. I guess it's funny because when I look at vertical farming and just agriculture in general, it's it's like a lot of a lot of the issues I think we have with just health in the US and just society and global warming, it can be addressed like in a multifaceted way with agriculture. And so I guess for me doing this, you might not there people and I might not make the connection, but it's like I hope ultimately part of vertical farming is to have Americans eat healthier, you know. Like, I don't know if that will happen, but I'm hoping that down the line that can address that issue and just get vegetables to be more accessible to everybody. You know, um, I think main reason is like a lot of people eat unhealthy just because it's easy and it's cheap and that's what they have access to. And they don't really have, you know, not everybody can afford a $17 salad at Sweetgreens. You know? yeah. So <laughs> it's like, yeah. 
why is that this idea of making it more accessible to a wider audience? Is that why is that important for you? Yeah, I've read a lot about just the food industry, you know, the meat industry, the ag industry, like the corn industry, and watch a lot of documentaries, some biased, some not. But yeah, it's just like, I think, uh, like I mentioned, it's a lot of problems that uh, I think we can solve based off of from agriculture itself, especially from the health health standpoint. I've, especially the past two years with COVID, and, you know, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, deaths around me. And so it's kind of put things into perspective uh, for me in terms of health and just kind of not taking things for granted. So I've definitely been more conscious about what I eat, how I eat, stuff like that. But yeah, and I was like, I, and I don't want myself to only, you know, ourselves to have access to that. I feel like, you know, a lot of underserved communities aren't able to do that. So it's, it's, it would be nice for them to also have the option of eating healthy and not just, you know, one choice of fast food kind of situation. Yeah, it's interesting because I grew up also just outside the city in Yonkers, New York, and I've lived in the city. I've lived in Brooklyn and East Village, Lower East Side. And uh, so really of, of any city, probably in the, in the United States, New York is the closest to my heart, <laughs> New York City, and I've lived in LA as well. But it is, you're consciously aware of the convenience of like a bodega, like a block away, but then the realization that fresh food is really hard to find you know and and like the sad lettuce that's in a bodega <laughs> probably doesn't compare you know to what what you know realize is available to just even now i live in minneapolis now and we have a backyard and we're we're planting lettuce kale cucumbers tomatoes and and as it starts to fruit you know you're, you're picking it needing it fresh off the vine and then you just you know we we've lost that ability to understand you know that that connection of exactly where our food comes from and even you, you talked about you know the, the meat industry the factory farming you know where my partner and i mostly pescatarian because i think people there's a disconnect and especially if, if you've grown up i've never had you know access to fresh food one of the speakers at the conference was uh, Stephen from green bronx machine who if you've ever seen him speak his energy is like completely off the charts and we're going to have him on the show he's done such good work and just educating and inner city kids and you know he told the story about how i think one of the kids that was in the program they you know they grew lettuce and they had a salad and the kids like well this is the first salad i've ever had and you know just like whoa like you know just thinking about those things is really puts things into perspective so I'm, it's interesting so i'm wondering as you're you know in that phase of your life like when does the idea start to percolate for you you know you, you're obviously you have been involved in, in farming uh, projects but when you think about starting your own company, present its own set of challenges and probably a lot of internal questions. So talk a little bit about, about your mindset, just pre-starting, like what you're thinking and, and why you feel like the, the timing was right. Yeah, I was always very hesitant. I mean, just from coming from my background, my dad, uh, he was an engineer. He worked uh, at the same company for 30 years. Yeah. And that's kind of like the mindset that my parents were, my mom still pushes me to do yeah. you know just, just <laughs> yeah, find a job like your dad work there for like 30 years retire it's the immigrant i was actually born in el salvador my parents came here as immigrants and it's the you know get the secure job <laughs> exactly yeah yeah i'm like i appreciate the thought and i understand where you're coming from but then for me at least the past couple of years i felt like it would be a disservice to them to come to this country and have like for a better life for my sister and myself just to do you know, just to do a nine to five job for the next 30 years of my life. Right. That's like, that's not what they came here for me to do. Like I should be striving to do better, sure. you know, better and better, better. So that's kind of how 
my mentality is with, but it's tough because they're so, they're not against what I'm doing, but they're definitely just afraid of the instability of being an entrepreneur, you know, like, especially because they're, yeah, they're parents. <laughs> they want us, they don't want you. To, you like, what about health insurance? Yeah. I'm like, I got that. <laughs> don't worry. My wife's working. I'm on her health insurance. <laughs> but I think, so I wasn't your typical entrepreneur where like, I just dropped everything and went full steam ahead on it. You know, I kind of slowly built this on the side and I wanted to get it to a point where I felt comfortable enough that, okay, I can quit my job and start pursuing this. I wanted to be in a good spot before I jumped in. And, and at the same time, you know, I had other projects that I tried prior to VegFed that either failed or I kind of gave up too early. And this was one project, an idea slash business that I did not want to give up on, you know, and I don't think a lot of people talk about their failures too much, but I failed a lot. And I knew that if I continued to work full time and I tried to grow this kind of slowly on the side, it would eventually just die off if I didn't spend more time on it. You know, it's like, it's very difficult to be a part-time entrepreneur. Like it's, nobody really does that. I mean, I mean you can do it like and to get it off the ground and start a little bit, but at some point you just have to, you just have to go for it. Um, and so I knew I would regret, regret it for the rest of my life if veg bed failed only due to the lack of time I put into it. Right. If it failed and I'm like, oh, I was only spending four hours a week, then that's on me. That's stupid. I, that Like, why did I do that? Like if I put 110% effort in, I spent 80 hours a week on it and it still failed, I'd be comfortably fine with that. Like I gave it my all. I gave it a shot and it didn't work out. But if it didn't work out just because I didn't put effort, then I would be very upset about that. <laughs> yeah, because if you think about the the things that you have that are accessible to you when you're just getting started, you may not have all the funding, but you know you do have more time than money. So to your point, I think putting that time in and just putting that sweat equity in to just see if this is a valid idea. So how many, and I don't also want to call it the fact, you know, this idea of, of failing as an entrepreneur, it's something that I've had to learn myself and, and be more comfortable with as those first couple are really painful and very expensive. <laughs> and you just sit there on the floor, you know, wallowing and like, what did I do wrong? And then I think what you realize is just the more you understand that it's an, it's sort of the, the nature of entrepreneurship is you have to try a lot of things. And, you know, there's the example of Edison and how many different variations of the light bulb he tried before he, you know, he landed on the one that worked. And, you know, the, the Gretzky quote of, you know, you miss all the shots you don't take, you know, and so just, you know, the, the cliche stuff, but if there's, you know, there's, they're cliche, but there's a truth to all of them. And I think it's this idea of understanding how to get up faster and how to recover and just figure out like that didn't work. Okay, let's try the next one. And you're iterating on the way. And then each one of those failures gives you like a little bit of a, a learning point to understand, okay, that's now I understand why that didn't work. And you sort of compile those, but I don't think you have the successes later on in your life if you don't have those early failures, because you know you probably get a sense of false confidence. And I think the sooner you get, you scrape your knee, <laughs> you know, and, and you get up, and then you realize, you know, it's, it's like learning to ride a bike, right? You, you're going to fall down a couple of times, <laughs> but then you know what not to do and uh, and how better to move forward. So, how many different ideas? did you have or you know even if they wouldn't come to fruition before you landed on the concept for a bit and then we'll get into that specifically yeah i just want to make one point, comment for anybody that's out there that's going to be listening that's trying to pursue entrepreneurship the one biggest piece of advice i could give is the one of the failures that happens i think with most entrepreneurs is that they they think if they build it people will come 
And that's the number one mistake where they had, oh, this is an awesome idea. Like everyone's going to love it. Like, yeah, this person told me they love it. Da, da, da. And they spent all this time, spent all this money. They build this thing. They create this product, this website, this software, Apple, whatever. And then nobody wants it or nobody downloads it or nobody buys it. So I think in the beginning, really figure out whether or not your customer actually wants that. Talk to people. Like it doesn't cost money to, to interview someone. Just ask them for their pitch. Ask them what their pain points are. Right. And that's how you can get the best. Have you heard of the book, uh, The Mom Test? Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, perfect. It's perfect. one of the, yeah, I took a, I was part of a fellowship with OnDeck for no code. And so one of the, the projects was to launch a site and, but also get users to it. And then to your point, this usability testing, like speak to customers and saying like, is this something you would use? Like, and I think the premise is like, make it so easy that your mom would understand it and she'd be able to explain the concept to it. But that's a really highly recommended. We'll make sure it's in the show notes, the mom test. Uh, for new entrepreneurs. But back to your question about uh, like some of the failures, they pretty much stem from what I, I just spoke about, about like thinking that these ideas were good and building something and then just realizing that either it was too difficult to use or people just didn't want it. For example, one of the failures I had, I don't know if you know Linktree. Oh yeah, yeah. On the Instagram. So basically like at the time, I didn't know Linktree existed. I think they actually started, launched like six months before we tried to essentially build the same thing. And so we knew that there was this problem with Instagram with the clickable link thing. And so me and my friend, he was a software engineer, we tried to build out uh, basically what Linktree was doing. However, our version of it was a lot more difficult. In our minds, it was intuitive, right? Oh, it's like, oh yeah, you add this photo and then you add the link to your product and then when they click it, it'll go to that. But it was just very, <laughs> as soon as we like built it and had people test it, they were just super confused by it. They didn't know how to do this. <laughs> Like all the stuff we thought was intuitive was not intuitive, right? Yeah. And so people just didn't really, you know, a lot, like maybe you had like 50 people try it and some of them just gave us some feedback, but nobody actually used it, you know, long-term. And that kind of just fizzled out because I was working full-time at the time and we were just like, man, people aren't going to use this. It's too complicated. We have to rethink this. And that kind of fizzled out. So that's a great example of just like, you know, we should have just talked to customers first before doing anything, but that was a lesson learned. Yeah, it's interesting that when you think about that tool, how deceptively easy and it's just a simple concept, the fact that you're just creating an alternative website. And I've been able to recreate that exact functionality by using Notion, which is a free tool. And just like you create a page and just put a link yeah, to it. But it's a, it's a link tree is a big company now and it's doing a lot of things. And it's sometimes you just need to solve a, a very simple pain point. So talk to me, how did you arrive at uh, VegBed? And, and for the benefit of the listener, also explain what, what it is and, and, and uh, the idea behind it. Yeah, sure. So after Farmstock parted ways, I still wanted to be in the agriculture industry uh, in some form. And I wanted to start a company where I wouldn't need to raise two and a half million dollars that I knew I could bootstrap. And I think most people that start into hydroponics and indoor farming can agree that the first thing that they experience is using Rockwell, which is a great medium, works well, it's cheap, it's pretty much been the industry standard for like 50 years. But I felt that there could be a better way to grow plants, especially since Rockwell is, you know, not sustainable. It's a molten glass rock, essentially. For those new to actual even indoor farming, can you explain just even that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. For those that are new, rock wool is essentially this stone wool that is used to germinate and grow 
plants. It's usually sold in a cube form and it's made from, I think, molten basalt rock that's superheated to a couple thousand degrees. And then it's uh, spun into this really fine kind of yarn. So it's essentially glass fibers. So it's utilized in home insulation. <laughs> and that's kind of, I think, why it's been so heavily used and so cheap because it's it's utilized in other applications. So it's it's so predominant in the housing market. Do you know the story behind it? I'm curious if it was just one of those things where there was like, you know how these all start, there's like excess supply of a product and people are like, where else could we use this? <laughs> what exactly? That's probably, I'm, I don't know the story behind how, yeah how Rockwell got involved in hydroponics, but I could totally see that happening where it's like this thing absorbs water. Yeah. Like the industry drives it. They're like, it was probably like a waste product or something like that. Exactly. Like, yeah. I don't use it. So, <laughs> so it's interesting because I'm, I'm curious and I'm always like to love the, the entrepreneurial mindset. And so you see that there's Rockwell being used and you, but you also feel like there's an opportunity to improve it. Yes. I think the main reason was because at the time when I was learning about vertical farming, inner farming, pretty much every company touts about, oh, we use 90% less water. We use like 90% electricity, 99% less land, and all these kind of sustainable growing methods. But they never ever, you know, they never talked about the downstream waste. Like what do they do with the rock? Well, they just toss it, right? It doesn't degrade. So, yeah. but that's never discussed, right? They, whenever you look at the stats of a website of a vertical farm, they're always talking about the water saving, the land saving, energy savings, but they never talk about the waste. I will give a shout out to, I think it was, I spoke to Andrew, who's the uh, chief, I think he's the innovation officer at uh, at IGS. And he he was talking about this, like sort of like this dirty little secret of vertical farming. And so I think it might be interesting. I'm, I'm going to have him come on and just specifically talk about waste because I want us to talk about, you know, the good and the bad and, and, and the stuff that, that where there is room for improvement. So but uh, yeah, definitely continue. Yeah, I'm curious about that as well. But yeah, the other thing I actually just learned while I was at GreenTech is that in the Netherlands and Germany, if you use Rockwell in your farms, you actually have to pay a fee to dispose of it. So they're kind of cracking down on that now. Yeah, okay. Which bodes well for the industry. I mean, I think it's about time. So that's kind of like the whole vision for VegBed was to try to shift the industry away from using Rockwell. And so it's talking about uh, entrepreneur mindset and uh, trying a bunch of different things. How many different iterations did you go through? <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, VegBed is right now, our core product is the bamboo fiber microgreen net. Initially, the first product I had was a grill cube, kind of like Rockwell, but it was made out of foam. However, obviously, it's not sustainable because it's made out of foam it worked well like people liked it but then after talking to customers they were like do you have a more sustainable option other than foam and so that evolved kind of into what we have today where i also had prior to the bamboo mat i had a foam mat that i made for a customer and went through multiple iterations with him on that and then finally customer just kept asking for a more sustainable option so that's how i shifted over and pivoted to the bamboo fiber and so how big is the team now and, and who are you working with? It's just me and I have someone helping me with um, like biz dev and marketing. Okay. A couple of contractors that I've had to help out with like web, web design and stuff like that. Yeah. Mainly me. And what's been um, the early adoption by companies who, to the extent that you can talk about it? Who are you working with or, or the types of companies you're working with? Uh, yeah, a couple of people have NDAs with, but mainly... So right now on the B2B retail side, we're offered on True Leaf Market and Hort Americas. Um, currently working with two other distributor retailers now in the U.S. Uh, to carry the product. But 
most of the direct-to-consumer customers and the farmers I work with, they're usually, I would say, small to mid-sized farms that grow in their local market, probably like two to 300 trays a week of microgreens. And they'll usually sell at farmer's markets or restaurants and like the local supermarkets. So that's like the core of the, the customer right now. Not too many individual hobbyists, but mainly like small, middle-sized farms, microgreen farmers. And from a, a sustainability perspective, like how do you explain it to folks how it's different than the rock wool and, and what does that look like? And how, I mean, does it get into the specifics of like how fast it decomposes? Yeah. So for, I mean, bamboo itself, when you look at the growth chart of bamboo, it grows exponentially faster as time goes on. Even in the beginning, it grows really, really fast. Like I think within the first month, it grows well, like six to 12 inches a day. After like one month, it starts growing like, you know, more than a foot a day. So in terms of like sustainability, like when you chop one down, it, they, they grow like literally like weeds. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing versus like compared to like hemp and some of the other products out there on the market, they don't, re- bamboo doesn't require a lot of resources or like purposeful farming to grow them. They just kind of grow wild along the riverbeds, like in Southeast Asia. So you don't have to actually like, mow down farmland to grow bamboo that's just kind of wildly growing everywhere so definitely highly sustainable in terms of like biodegradability tests i'm actually in the process of talking to a couple companies now to get like an official report i've had customers throw it like in their compost bins okay and stuff like that but i i want to kind of get like a more statistical analysis of like the time and everything like that so that's in the works now yeah so from a product perspective you know, can you talk a little bit about what you're thinking about? Like, where are there opportunities for you to grow? And are there, is it specifically, you think there are use cases that are still applicable in vertical farming that you could branch out to? Or because of the nature of the materials, are, are there other are opportunities for you to, to, to do some different product offerings? Yeah, I definitely am currently prototyping different forms of the product, mainly like a cube form. It's quite difficult though, because... I don't want to add any form materials into the product because right now it's just straight up bamboo fiber, which is yeah. basically tangled together with a mechanical process. So there's no glue or any binders in it. And I'm trying to stay away from that. But because of that, it's hard to create like a solid three-dimensional structure out of it. So it's, it's a challenge that I've been working on. So I'm working on some prototypes right now. So hopefully they work out. So that's kind of like the next evolution of this, getting into like a cube form uh, so that it's more widely usable besides just microgreens. And then also like with tomato and larger crop production, they have like these big bags. Right now it's usually like a big, a big slab of rock wool, which is like kind of like three or four feet long and like six inches high. They'll use that for like tomato production, cucumber production, um, peppers and stuff like that. So getting a product like that out, I think would be really beneficial because most of the pictures I see of like tomato and vine crop production is utilizing like big slabs of rock wool. I have no idea what they do with them afterwards. They probably just toss them. So that would, that would be great to, to help shift that away. And then also, I think just in general, maybe like some sort of soil amendment or a competitor to maybe cocoa cord is I think a lot of the... What's the, the cocoa cord? Cocoa coir. It's like right. um, like the, the thrown away coconut husks that they use yeah. for as a garden medium. But a lot of the potting soil out there, I don't know if many people know, but it's predominantly composed of shagnum peat moss, which is pretty unsustainable product and grows grows at the opposite rate of bamboo uh, usually like a few millimeters a year at the most yeah. and a lot of the potting mixes are like 60 70 percent jagged peat moss so 
I think there's opportunity there to kind of get a more sustainable soil soil amendment on the market as well. Where do you see like the, I guess, the biggest opportunity or the biggest challenge for you as the the founder and as the person who's wearing a lot of the hats <laughs> in the business? So, you know, where do you want to focus your time so you have the most, you know, are you looking for new clients? Are you spending some time on innovation? Are you doubling down on the relationships you have already? So I'm, I'm just curious where your mind's at. And I'm sure every day when you wake up, it's a different answer. <laughs> but I'm curious uh, what, what's top of mind for you now. Honestly, pretty much all the three things that you just listed are, are priority for me right now. Just expanding the business in terms of getting into more distribution retail, getting a couple more commercial farms online would be great. And then just expanding the product line as well. I think of the, the two main things that I'm, I'm going to be focusing on. The other thing that you know I'm not an expert in and I don't have a degree in is like material science. And I think finding somebody that is uh, knowledgeable about materials and products to be able to help me kind of create these prototypes in the future, I think would be very beneficial. Have you given any thought to any of the processes that you've put in place for how these are created or assembled and, and, and maybe applying for patents for any of them? Because there might be some opportunities for something that you're doing specifically with this combination of materials in this form. And I know that there's a cost associated, obviously, with that. But I, you know, one of the companies I advise in the podcasting space has done some similar work with. It's actually this <laughs> this company that we're using, Squadcast, but they've got some patents that were eventually approved. It took a couple of years, but that's just something to kind of like, you know, get the ideas going to, to where there might be opportunities for you. So since this is, you know, you're you're relatively new in this space and using these materials, you might be doing it in a way that's that's new for the industry. Yeah, no, I'm totally open to that idea. At least with the new product development, I will look into that. Word of advice for anybody that's going out for patents, and I, I learned the hard way, is if you have a, an idea or a product and you intend on patenting it, don't talk about it or post photos or anything like that too early <laughs> because once it's out in the ether of the internet, you have two years. And I didn't realize that you have this eminent domain of two years to, as once it's out in the internet or in public, you got two years to patent it. And I had discussed and talked about VegBed early on on a Instagram post. And then when I finally decided, it was like right at the two-year cutoff mark. Yeah. And it was, yeah, the lawyer said it was too late. So okay. that's a good lesson learned there. <laughs> so in the future, yeah. just uh, try to get the ball rolling as soon as you start discussing that product. Or just don't talk about it until you're... <laughs> until you talk to the lawyer words, words lies. so as an entrepreneur and as someone who's worked with a you know i'm sure you've had different bosses and different mentors you know can you point to anyone that's been helpful for you along this journey because i know a lot, a lot of times this can be a, a lonely road and you know we're always looking for inspiration or people to motivate to motivate us or to help us so learn so we don't make the same mistakes you know that other people have made so you know have, have folks like that anyone come to mind that, that have been helpful for you along this journey it's a very good question. It's difficult, not like in terms of my previous roles, I don't think there was a direct, because naturally like I didn't want, I was very hesitant to allow any of my full-time jobs to know that I was working on the other side, because obviously they're going to think like, oh, you're Albert spending more time in his you know, side business than he has his work. So I've always kept it very under the radar. So not, not until like my previous job, I knew about it and they were supportive, but for the most part, it was very kind of under the radar. So I didn't really, was able to like, discuss strategies or talk about you know like the entrepreneur mindset with these companies yeah but i mean the most help i have had so far is just this accelerator that i just finished 
this week um, SLP program. It's been running for the, the past six months, but uh, 30 other founders and entrepreneurs and, you know, the whole network has been so great resource to just be able to like talk to people in that same mindset and that same state that you are. So that has been very, very helpful for sure. Very good. What's a, a tough question you had to ask yourself recently? The last class we had for the accelerator was talking about stop, pivot, or persist, right? And I think that's a question that a lot of founders ask every single day when they wake up, right? Whether to stop, pivot, or persist. And it's and the one thing that, you know, that we've learned that, that they're trying to still is like, it's okay to stop. Like a lot of people just stop. It just doesn't work out. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of, but you just have to kind of be honest with yourself and see where you want to take it and where you think it can go. And so for me, it's like just thinking about that every day, but I'm, I've pivoted and persisted. So I'm, I'm going to stick with the persist for now. Yeah. And when people ask how things are going, I just say, I'm, I'm persisting. That's kind of like <laughs> our, our joke that we had when people, when not, when non-founders and non-entrepreneurs ask you how you're doing, it's always like a very difficult kind of conversation. It's hard to explain to people yeah. who aren't in it, who haven't done it. It's like, well, you're doing what? Like, because it, to your earlier comment, you never turn it off. Like, I mean, some, I wake up and I think about all the things that I have to like get done in my business. And, you know, I, I think at some point, because if you're working on it day to day, then, then you have a business, you know, you don't have a lifestyle, you know? You, and so I think that I'm trying to move now to the point where I have, I can hire someone like to do the day to day. So I can just focus on like the strategy, you know, and, and, the, and the sales. And, and I think that's, it's a continuum. And I think to people who are just comfortable and, and need that, direct deposit in their bank account every, <laughs> every two weeks. And then, you know, like, I remember the first time that that didn't happen. I was like, okay, I'm an entrepreneur now. And I got to like, you know, fend for myself here. So it's, it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint hearted either, because it's uh, definitely lots of ups and downs and some sleepless nights sometimes. But I think you'll find that as you go deeper into the community and, and you align with organizations like the, the incubator you were a part of, I think you'll find that there's more like-minded folks in the space that you can talk to, you go to these conferences, and I'm sure you can have some really inspiring conversations. And then when you feel like you're doing something that's contributing to this overall need we have to just, you know, make people more aware of, you know, just growing food, and then the importance of, you know, having direct access to your food supply and not being impacted by the, the supply chain, and just all these things come to mind. This is some of the topics we've been covering on the show. So I think, hopefully, at the end of the day, that inspires you to, to move forward with your mission. Yeah, yeah totally. I think it's kind of back to what you're just saying with the talking about food and, you know, 98% of the lettuce that's grown in the U S is grown in California and Arizona. And when you think of it, it's like, does it really need to be that way? Like most industries, you want to have like a centralized kind of area where you create the product to get it as cheap as possible. But I think with food, having that model doesn't make sense. It should be decentralized where we just have more local hubs that create food and just deliver within a, you know, four or 500 mile radius, as opposed to just one place growing, just shipping everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, I think I'm hoping that vertical farming can lead to more, more of a decentralized hub for, for food production. So we don't have to rely on just one area of the nation to, to provide us with food reduces risk too, especially with like E. coli drought. Yeah. Just a lot of things, you know? So as we wrap up, given the audience and, you know, the focus for this show on, the players in the space and the, the people who are interested in the space is, is there a specific ask that you have for my audience? No, if you, if you have uh, questions about entrepreneurship and just kind of like the journey, some of like, you know, I have many mistakes that I can 
offer and, and lessons learned. So I'm always happy to, to talk to other people in the space that are starting off or, or have questions or strategies, um, and kind of what I went through. Also, if you're, you know, in farming, you're a producer, grower, retailer, distributor, also happy to talk to you about the product and trying it out and getting you some samples. Uh, more than happy to do that. Well, thanks for reaching out, Albert. And uh, it's it's always interesting to get the gamut of experiences here from people who have been, you know, just getting into vertical farming, who, you know, early adopters into the space or people that are just have an interest in this industry and now have, you know, figuring out what their specific specialty and niche is. And I'm glad uh, we got to connect and we got to tell your story because I think they're all inspiring. So I appreciate you taking your time and sharing your story with my audience. Yeah, Harry, thanks. It was really fun. I, I love that we kind of dove really way back and kind of just talked about mindset and how I grew up. I think that's not a lot of people talk about, they just kind of talk about the company and that's, you know, that's kind of it. But uh, I think getting a sense of more of a background of, of the person's history and mindset is, is definitely helpful and eye-opening um, for listeners as well. And inspiring. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> and so uh, vegbed, V-E-G-B-E-D dot com for the website. Any other place you want to send folks to to connect with you to learn more? Uh, yeah, email. I'm just albert, albert at vegbed dot com. Okay. And all the handles on Facebook, Instagram is all just vegbed. So pretty easy to find. All right. Thanks again for your time, Albert. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks again to Albert of VegBed for coming on the show and sharing his story. Very inspiring to see what he's doing as an entrepreneur and how he saw a need in this industry. I'm really excited to support him as he builds his network. Thanks again to our Season 5 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at Cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co about how a podcast may be helpful for your brand. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. That's a wrap on season five. I'm really excited to bring a whole new slate of interviews to you for season six. I'll tease out a couple of the companies and the names that have got lined up. We're looking at Allison Koff returning from Ayuno, Philip Labrie from Greenforges, Henry Gordon-Smith makes a return visit to the show, Eric Eisel from Growflux, Dr. Christian Toma from Cholera, Christos Raftuagianis from City Crop, and Amy Wu, who I connected with at Farms to Incubators. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.